we're borrowing money from China to pay Chinese entities. That doesn't make any sense. In this episode, I sit down with Adam Andrzejewski, the CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. Through tens of thousands of Freedom of Information Act requests, this government watchdog has compiled and made public almost all U.S. government spending at every level of government. Earmarks were brought back after a 10-year ban because of secret votes in the Republican caucus where they voted to join Pelosi Democrats to bring back the practice. We discussed the problem of the earmarks, what Andrzejewski calls Congress's currency of corruption. We also discussed government contracts and grants to adversaries like China and Russia and the militarization of our federal agencies. Who knew that the National Institutes of Health had a police force? of over 100 officers. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelik. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an a rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Adam Andrzejewski, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Great to have you back. Thanks, Jan. Thanks for having me back. Well, you have a lot to talk about, I think. You know, you've been doing some of these amazing reports, you know, with Senator Ernst on China-Russia. You've got this whole piece on earmarks. And the whole earmark world, I find, I don't know, I'm still sort of trying, <laughs> struggling to, to grasp that, that this exists and, and functions. Let's start on the China-Russia side. You know, over the last five years, $1.3 billion has gone to China and Russia. And, you know, these are adversaries. What, what sense does that make? So what's going on? Well, it is mystifying. We're borrowing money from China to pay Chinese entities. That doesn't make any sense. So at OpenTheBooks.com, we took a look at the payments to the adversarial nations of China and Russia, and we found $1.3 billion flowed over the course of the last five years. Now, the Government Accountability Office, they were charged by Congress at taking a look at the payments into China. They found $49 million. We found $490 million because we actually dug a little deeper. We dug into the subgrants. What we, What nobody can follow is the tier two and tier three subgrants. Those right now aren't even disclosed. So the $1.3 billion just may be the tip of the iceberg. That's wild. I mean, and one of the things that you found was $2 million going to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. 
all you know, and and we know that that was a place where there was bioweapons development being done, and uh, you know, all sorts of gain of function experiments and so forth. So it's two million dollars uh, since 2014 into the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but according to the latest federal government audits, only 1.4 million dollars was ever paid out. So let's break down the $2 million worth of appropriations into the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So you've got $600,000 that was paid on subgrants through EcoHealth Alliance from the National Institutes of Health. And these are the payments being questioned as to whether or not Fauci and Collins, Francis Collins, the former director of the National Institutes of Health, and Dr. Fauci, obviously the former director of the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, whether or not those grants funded gain of function. But you also have $1.1 million funding the Wuhan Institute through a U.S. foreign aid entity, the U.S. AID, again, through subgrants through EcoHealth Alliance. On that $1.1 million, now it is said that only $800,000 was ever paid out. The rest of the payments were stopped. But so, so what is the significance of that? Well, the significance is this week, the Biden administration finally, after three years, formally stopped all federal payments into the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So, you know, it's about time. This is the, the spot on earth that has probably received the most scrutiny out of any U.S. aid recipient uh, in the entire federal checkbook. And finally, after three years, the Biden administration says they're formally cutting any additional money. But they had friends in high places. As late as May of 2021 in the well of the Senate, Dr. Anthony Fauci was testifying uh, in answering questions from U.S. Senator uh, John Kennedy out of Louisiana, and Fauci said he found the Wuhan Institute of Virology scientists as very competent and trustworthy. In our experience with grantees, including Chinese grantees, which we've had interactions with for a very long period of time, they're very competent, trustworthy scientists. I'm not talking about anything else in China. I'm talking about the scientists that you would expect that they would abide by the conditions of the grant, which they've done for the years that we've had interactions. So you don't think the Chinese would lie to you? Well, when you say the Chinese, the Chinese are a rather broad group. I know the scientists that we've dealt with have been trustworthy. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I, I, it's either a kind of, you know, gullibility or, or something like that or, or something much worse. This is I've, I've been struggling to figure out what 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 the nature of that thinking was exactly, given the clearly the the, the briefings that are, should be available to everybody about what, what, what is going on there and, and, and many other places in China and in their, in their biological laboratories, especially that level. In 2021, that U.S. aid agency, USAID, issued a letter to a member of Congress saying that they had paid out 1.1 million on subgrants to the Wuhan Institute. Now, the Government Accountability Office says, oh, no, wait a second, only 800,000 was paid out on that. So the Wuhan Institute of Virology, it's always been a black box with little transparency and even less accountability. What is the status of all these kind of royalties payouts out of the um, NIH, basically, and these other and these other agencies? This is something you've been trying to get to the bottom of. So, in fall of 2021, our organization at OpenTheBooks.com 
we filed a Federal Freedom of Information Act request with the National Institutes of Health for their third-party royalty database. A third-party royalty is paid from uh, private industry, think a pharmaceutical company, to the National Institutes of Health for an invention. An invention paid for by the U.S. taxpayer in a government lab by a, by a, uh, a U.S. government scientist, again, on a U.S. government taxpayer paid salary, they invent something, they license it to the private sector to monetize the invention, and a royalty payment is paid back to the agency on a split with the scientist. We wanted a copy of that database. Yeah, and I think that during the pandemic, the American people started to feel that big government was very close to big pharma. That database will tell us just how close they were. On our Freedom of Information Act request, the National Institutes of Health actually ignored it. We sued them right away with Judicial Watch as our legal partner, and we opened up that database, 3,000 pages over a decade, over 50,000 payments to 2,400 scientists. But we can only see the top line summary numbers. $325 million was paid from the industry to the agency, its leadership, and its scientists, enriching them. Here's what we can't see. NIH is still redacting the name of the third party payer. Think pharmaceutical company. We don't know who paid over $300 million worth of royalties. We don't know the amount to the individual scientists. They're redacting the amount to the individual scientists, including Fauci, including Francis Collins. And we don't know what they invented in the taxpayer-paid labs. They're redacting the invention number and the license number. So this week there was movement in the U.S. Senate. Rand Paul, who's made this an issue. You remember when he quizzed Fauci twice in 2022 in the Senate on his third-party royalties, and Fauci refused to disclose any of his information, just like the agency is refusing to disclose the information. So Rand Paul submitted an amendment in a subcommittee in the Senate, and U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders had the political muscle to stop Rand Paul's amendment, which would have opened up the entire third-party royalty complex. Unfortunately, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska crossed party lines and voted with Bernie Sanders to keep these royalties secret. Given the amount of, uh, let's say, conflict of interest that we've become aware of over the last three plus years that, that exists, um, you would think this would be important. It is important because we know every year the National Institutes of Health, they dole out $32 billion worth of grant making to over 50,000 recipients. And Jan, that buys you a lot of friends, that buys you a lot of allies, that basically buys you the entire U.S. healthcare complex. All the research now we know coming back through the other door is hundreds of, hundreds of millions worth of these third-party royalties over the last decade. We need to see the flow of funds. Every single one of those third-party royalty payments is a potential conflict of interest. Absolutely. So let's go back to this, uh, to Ch the China-Russia, the $1.3 billion over the last five years. Maybe offer me a few kind of interesting tidbits that you found out of that. So $1.4 million was through a domestic farm commodities program for U.S. school districts across the country to feed in the 
cafeterias are K through 12 students, domestic agriculture products, but it wasn't done domestically. 1.4 million went to a Chinese entity to supply America's K through 12 schools with a Chinese agriculture commodity. We found $6 million, and this is particularly troubling, through the Department of Defense on an IT contract with a Chinese contractor on a very sensitive program that in a crisis would deliver man manpower, troops, and supplies to the crisis point. And $6 million was uh, done through a Chinese IT contractor. If you're a Chinese IT contractor, 100%, you are in line with the CCP. We found the State Department gave $60 million worth of contracts to Chinese entities, including $25,000 to the Chinese surfing community uh, to where they had an on-the-beach party with State Department officials, the Chinese surfers, and it was all about, quote-unquote, climate change education. So I just want to, for the benefit of our viewers, just remind them we're talking about $1.3 billion being paid out to China and Russia in the current context. Right, so the split on that is about uh, 490 million went to China over five years, and the rest, about 800 million plus, went to entities in Russia. It doesn't get any better on our payments into Russian entities. For example, we have $24 million paid to a Russian contractor to do security for our embassies. We've got $600,000 paid to Russian transportation companies to move our confidential intelligence briefing pouch. Jan, do you think Putin in America, right here in Washington, D.C., has an American contractor securing his confidential diplomatic pouch? Not a chance, but that's what we do in Russia. Fascinating. And how much of this would be during the Russia-Ukraine war, out of curiosity? Do you have a sense of that? So our payments were up until the first quarter of 2023. Okay. There's a $5 million uh, payment of U.S. taxpayer money to a Russian health insurance provider that actually was sanctioned during this period of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. No, and it's just, it, it's amazing. When we talk about these numbers, you know, this is what I was, when I, when I look through your material, we're just talking yeah, a billion here, a few million here. You know, these are actually significant amounts of money, but you, you kind of forget that almost as you're pouring through these documents. I mean, and we haven't even started on the earmarks here. Look, it's a target-rich environment right now in Washington, D.C. for a watchdog. I mean, it, and I think the American people really get a sense, and they're tired of the overspending they're tired of the corruption. You know, it used to be that we only knew one example of misspending, and that was the bridge to nowhere. Uh, at OpenTheBooks.com, our, our whole mission is not only to open the books and audit them, but it's also to educate the American people on exactly where your tax dollar is being spent. Right, and I just want to also remind our viewers or those that might not be aware that you can actually go to openthebooks.com and search for things. It's a highly searchable, absolutely fascinating database if you want to take a moment and see what sorts of crazy things money is being spent on. That's why we believe transparency revolutionizes United States public policy and politics. So I encourage everybody watching the program, come to our website at openthebooks.com and take a look. 
because we have nearly, not quite, but nearly every dime taxed and spent at every level of government across the entire country available for search on our website. I'm talking federal spending, all 50 state checkbooks, 15,000 municipal level checkbooks right into your local school district, 25 million, nearly every single salary of a public employee at every level of government across the entire country. It took us 55,000 Freedom of Information Act requests just last year to compile all of this. We do the hard work so you can hold the political class accountable for tax and spend decisions. Well, so let's talking about accountability. Let's jump into your earmarks report. Again, there might be people who don't even know what earmarks are. So why don't you give me a quick overview and then let's, let's dive into it. There's some absolutely amazing things that you found. Well, an earmark, here's the definition. It's a member pet project requested by a member of Congress for their own district. People have described it as fleece, pork, log rolling, the currency of corruption in Congress, pork belly shame, the earmark favor factory, other, others have described it as legal bribery to put member votes on big spending omnibus bills, the currency of corruption in Congress. Uh, look, bringing back earmarks, they were banned for 10 years, has been the equivalent of open bar for a bunch of alcoholics. Republicans and Democrats are addicted to spending our taxpayer money, and earmarks grease it. Well, so, and it doesn't all sound that bad because after all, every member their job is to represent the people in their district or in their state. You would expect they would be doing some things to support their districts or states. Well, earmarks are an end run around regular order in the appropriations process in Congress. So you do an earmark basically to circumvent the process of, of getting a line in a budget bill, going through committee and subcommittee hearings, having a full and public vetting on every line of that legislation, having votes in those committees all the way along till it reaches the floor, and then you get an up or down vote. An earmark is totally different. It's vague wording. It's, it, there's thousands of them. It's hard to give them any scrutiny. Uh, the amounts are, are large and getting larger. There's no public purpose to compel for instance, working and middle-class taxpayers in Arkansas to fund a $3 million New York earmark into an Ivy League college like Columbia University, which has a $13.3 billion endowment. So you get all kinds of these pork projects that are just, quite frankly, unnecessary. You know, these ideas that there'd be earmarks that just go directly into large endowments, I mean, that is obviously a shocking reality, but you found all sorts of other things as well. We did. So it just starts with some of the most powerful people in Congress seven months ago, two retiring U.S. Senators, one a Democrat, one a Republican, that sat in leadership positions on the Senate Appropriations Committee. The chairman, the Democrat, Patrick Leahy, he was retiring. He earmarked $30 million in the University of Vermont into their Honors College. In May, after he retires, just May a month ago, two months ago, the college renames the Honors College after Patrick Leahy, the senator. He, uh, he also received from the University of Vermont, from the president, a permanent position as a presidential fellow at the university. But then Leahy did it again. $34 million earmark into the Burlington International Airport. And then in April, the city council renamed the airport 
after Patrick Leahy. Okay, so let's go to the Republican, Patrick Leahy's uh, colleague on the Senate Appropriations Committee, Richard Shelby, who is also retiring. He earmarks $50 million to his alma mater, the University of Alabama. The $50 million earmark didn't go for a project. It went into their endowment. They already had a billion dollars in their endowment. So Jan, think about this. They borrowed $50 million. All these earmarks are borrowed against the national debt. We borrowed against the national debt to stuff it in the University of Alabama endowment, which was already a billion dollars for a school that pays their football coach $11 million a year. So what is the total say, budget of earmarks in the last year? Yes, so in the last omnibus spending bill, the bill was $1.7 and there was $16 billion worth of these pet projects, 7,500 of them stuffed into that bill. And seven out of the top 10 earmarkers were actually Republicans. Those seven Republicans earmarked $3.1 billion. You had Republicans in 21 states out earmark their Democratic colleagues, including the states of Texas, 500 million to 300 million, Florida, 450 million to 250 million. For crying out loud, you had nine members of the Republican Freedom Caucus. They're known to be the most fiscally conservative. They earmarked 72 projects for a half billion dollars, 490 million dollars. And the situation's only getting worse. Breaking yesterday, uh, the top 63 earmarkers for 2024 in the House are Republicans. I mean, fascinating. I guess, I guess the attitude is something like, hey, if we, if, we can do the, if we can do this, we should do it. You know, we've got this capability. You know, earmarks are the currency of corruption in Congress. And what you've just articulated Jan, I really want to cover because it is the Mary Poppins method of governing. A little bit of sugar helps the medicine go down. And there's no sugar left. And I want to use as my evidence the national debt. In 1980, a little over 200 years of the Republic, the national debt stood incredibly at less than $1 trillion. A little over 40 years later today, $32.5 trillion on the national debt. And this could be the death knell of a democracy. When a democracy realizes they can vote themselves gener generous benefits from the federal treasury, that's the first step to collapse. Sounds like it makes sense, but, but what have you developed here? That's what I'm trying to figure out. So uh, we just go back to 1887 when the Scottish professor at the University of Edinburgh studied this and he said the average length of the world's greatest civilizations is 200 years and it starts to fall apart and the wheels come off when their legislatures realize they can vote themselves those general benefits from the, from the federal treasury. Uh, they say that after collapse, the next step is always dictatorship. So look, the way to cheat history is through tr radical transparency. Every dime online in real time. And so, you know, earmarks are a great example of this. We need to hold the powerful accountable and we need to hold Republicans who are being absolutely hypocritical on spending. They say they want less spending, but they've brought back this earmarking process, this currency of corruption.
to do end runs around regular order. Republicans should be doing regular order. They should not be instituting earmarks, which are irregular. So we're calling on House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. No secrets. Earmarks were brought back after a 10-year ban because of secret votes in the Republican caucus where they voted to join Pelosi Democrats to bring back the practice. Like McCarthy needs to call a public vote in the well of the House. We need to see who's in, who's out on earmarks. No secrets. Who in the, in the Republican caucus, McCarthy included, McCarthy doesn't take earmarks personally but allowed the secret vote for the last two years, you know, who thought this was a good idea? One of the things that you've also covered is uh, the, something that a lot of our viewers are concerned with is the militarization of, of some of our agencies. You know, notably, the one that people are aware of most, of course, is the IRS. You know, so what, what is the actual case for the IRS to have weaponized law enforcement officers? Jan, we at OpenTheBooks.com, we are the subject matter experts on the militarization of the federal agencies. If you're hearing about the militarization of the IRS or any other federal agency, it's our data. Like, I'm not even sure anybody else knows how to quantify the purchase of guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment in the rank-and-file federal agencies. So the IRS spokesman, because we've asked repeatedly over the years, uh, will tell you that they have to deal with a lot of bad hombres, like a lot of bad actors. They go after the worst of the worst. But here's, I think, where the American people, we've kind of reached the point where we view it as the tax man shouldn't be the law enforcement man as well. That there needs to be a difference, and the IRS is blurring the lines between civil law, to being a civil administrative agency and a law enforcement agency. And I think we've reached the point to actually consider, and there's now legislation introduced in the House by Matt Gates and in the Senate by Joni Ernst, the U.S. Senator, the junior senator from Iowa, to disarm the IRS. At OpenTheBooks.com, we have a petition. You can come to our website. We want to put tens of thousands of signatures on that to backstop the legislation in Congress to create the division between the administrative side of the IRS and transfer the arrest and firearm authority of the IRS to traditional law enforcement agencies. Well, so how common is this practice among agencies of this, kind, again, sort of taking on this law enforcement role somehow? And it's, it's very interesting because it's always, you know, there's, it's a slow ebb, right? It starts small and then it grows. That's, that's what we see in these, you know, in these bureaucratic, uh, I guess, realities. So let's talk about the entire militarization of the federal complex. Today, incredibly, there are more federal officers with arrest and firearm authority at 200,000 than there are United States Marines at 186,000. So since the year 2006, we've been able to quantify at OpenTheBooks.com that 103 federal agencies have spent $3.7 billion on the purchase of guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment. Here's how that breaks down. There are 27 traditional law enforcement agencies. Think FBI, U.S. Marshals. These are the Secret Service. These are the agencies housed under the Department of Justice or the Department of Homeland Security. But there are 76 traditional paper-pushing, regulatory, civil administrative agencies that have now armed up. I'm talking the Department of Education, Health and Human Services, uh, who knew that the National Institutes of Health had a police force of 100 officers? I'm talking about 
the Environmental Protection Agency, and of course, folks like the IRS. I think we need to scale back the federal arsenal. I mean, think about this. After grabbing legal power, these federal agencies are amassing firepower. I mean, if you dive into the, for instance, the gun locker at the Internal Revenue Service, so it's $35.2 million since 2006 purchasing guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment. So let's talk about their gun locker pre-pandemic. 4,500 guns, including 5 million rounds of ammunition that they stockpiled. If you break their gun locker down, you find over 600 shotguns, 500 long barrel rifles, that's AR-15 Smith & Wesson style rifles. Uh, Post-pandemic, you find the IRS purchase of guns, ammunition, and military style equipment peaking, peak years in 2020 and 2021. So you had $10 million spent since the pandemic at the IRS on guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment, including a million dollars worth of new guns. Half million dollars of those AR-15 Smith & Wesson rifles and a half million dollars worth of shotguns. Uh, you got a half million dollars worth of tactical, tactical equipment. The IRS special agent, there's 2,100 of them, they have so much gear, they spent $350,000 on bags for their tactical gear. It's a lot of gear, Jan. It, it is, and so have you reached out to any of these agencies to, uh, to actually find out like why, they're, why they need this? I mean, I can kind of imagine some reasons, but what, do, do you have a sense of this? Well, the IRS, for example, they've got 15 submachine guns in their basement, and with 2,100 special agents, and the thinking is they're gonna add five or 600 special agents as the headcount of the IRS increases. 3% of the total headcount is added as special agents. So we estimate that over the course of the next five years, the IRS compared up against local law enforcement police departments across the country. There's 12,200 local police departments across the country. The IRS on headcount alone with their 25, 2,600 agents will be a top 100 largest police department in the country. But again, like why, what is, what is the purpose? I think it's about size, scope, and power. And they wanna have that command and control within the agency. Well, Adam, it's always incredibly eye-opening to talk to you. I'm just kind of always end up being stunned and amazed. Um, and, and I think you're doing very, very valuable work because you know whatever it is, having that accountability and transparency is, is, is so critical. What would you say the biggest wins were for you in this last year? Well, in 2023, we're racking up some, some good wins here. So right away in January, when the Republicans took control of Congress, they instituted for the first time a rule, a 72-hour read the bill rule, a timeout, just so we know what's in the legislation before the vote. That is a, uh, the fruition of a two-year public policy campaign at OpenTheBooks.com. We put this in the Wall Street Journal, my then column at Forbes. We put tens of thousands of petition signatures together backing that, and the Republicans, to their credit, adopted that rule when they took control in the House. In March, we had the big victory, working with Representative Elise Stefanik, House Republican leadership. We gave oversight to the Pentagon's K through 12 public schools and their Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion 
and our research and oversight helped cancel that DEI office and remove the uh, head of that office. She was reassigned within the Pentagon. So that was a big victory. We actually uh, scaled back some uh, government over there in the K through 12 public schools. Uh, here recently with the Russia-China payments, U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, she's got the Tracks Act that would open all payments at every level, including second and third tier subgrants, which aren't disclosed right now as a matter of law in the adversarial nations. Uh, and then what's coming down the pike shortly is our oversight report on the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency we show that the headcounts at the EPA are rapidly advancing. Soon they'll have 20,000 employees, which is about 50% higher than where they were when Donald Trump left office. Uh, they've lawyered up, they've armed up. Every year they spend about $150 million between their criminal uh, investigation division and their Homeland Security division. So the flywheel, Jan, it's spinning a lot faster. It is a target-rich environment in Washington, D.C. for a watchdog. Well, Adam Andrzejewski, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you all for joining Adam Andrzejewski and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja Kellek.